Bible and turn to Titus chapter 1. We finished Daniel last week, and we will begin uh, several weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. That will actually, Lord willing, that will carry us into 2022, our series on the Sermon on the Mount. But um, as if, if you're keeping track, a couple of times between longer series, we've done uh, uh, kind of a standalone on thinking biblically about one thing or another, thinking biblically about our worldview, thinking biblically about government. Um, and that was the original plan when I went away last, well, when, when we planned this, when the elders talked about this last November. Um, but this summer, I decided I wanted to do something different here. Um, and you'll and you'll see why because because the the issue of church leadership is so very important. We haven't actually talked about this since we transitioned. There hasn't been a sermon on a text like this since we transitioned to a plurality of elders. So it seems wise, and I'll give some other reasons why we would uh, come to this. It never is good to uh, give uh, disappointing news, by the way. Um, I saw many of your faces light up with great exuberance when you did not see a boot on my left foot, as if to say, he's been healed. But, um, but I, I wanted to just give a brief, I hate talking about these things, but I don't want you to be distracted by the fact, I'm not sitting forever, okay? This isn't like a new thing. Um, but uh, I, I got, uh, I went back to the podiatrist, got a cortisone shot, and basically if that doesn't restore normalcy in my foot life, uh, then uh, it's possible that surgery's on the horizon. So, uh, don't know. We'll know in another week or so. Uh, but until then, uh, my wife has encouraged me to baby it as much as possible, and so this is me being a baby. All right? Uh, so, uh, <laughs> Titus chapter 1. Um, I want to read just verses 5 to 9, and then we will pray and then dive in. This is what the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery, or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come knowing that you are our teacher. Your spirit must open our eyes so that we see your truth for what it is and to love it and to live according to it. And so we ask that today. We ask that your word will penetrate our hearts and our minds, that it will enlighten our eyes, that it will give strength to our souls. We pray it will strengthen your church and call the lost to Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Leadership matters. This week, conversations around the water cooler and around the nation have centered on matters related to leadership. The leadership of our last few presidents in relationship to Afghanistan and the most recent decision to pull out of Afghanistan as we have. The reason that conversations have centered on that is because leadership matters. It matters in a nation, 
and it matters in the church. A few weeks ago, I began listening to kind of a short-term podcast that's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, Mars Hill was a church in Seattle planted in 1996 by Mark Driscoll, a name that you may recognize from hearing him preach or reading a book of his or just hearing about him. It grew, Mars Hill Church grew to thousands in attendance over multiple campuses until very suddenly it collapsed and closed in 2014. And one of the central issues in the story of Mars Hill is that of leadership, the leadership that started it, the leadership that built it, and in the end, the sinful leadership that destroyed it. Leadership matters, and God has spoken to us about it. He tells us that we as His people need leaders, but we don't just need any leaders. We need a particular kind of leader. And Titus 1 gives us some of the standards for those leaders. And maybe as we were reading it, you had a question that came to mind. Why are we talking about this? Why preach this on a Sunday morning? After all, most of us aren't pastors, and most of us never will be. Or maybe your mind went to something like, well, since the Bible calls and orders that, that, that men are to serve as elders, maybe this would be better done at a men's retreat or at a men's Bible study. Well, it would be good at a men's retreat and a men's Bible study. Uh, but why this setting, which I think is a helpful question to ask, and I want to give you five brief reasons. They're not going to be on the screen. You can write them down. You cannot write them down. I'm just going to make my case for preaching this sermon, all right? The first reason why we're going to look at this text is because God said it, all right? That is fundamental. To the, God does, didn't waste ink when He inspired Paul to write these words. And at the very end, the last sentence in Titus says, grace be with you all. In this last sentence, Paul makes a shift from the singular to the plural. In other words, in Paul's mind, this was never just meant to be for Titus. This was to be something that was read and kept and understood by the churches, particularly there in Crete, and then in God's providence, wider than that. All right? So that's the first reason, because God said it. The second reason is so that you'll know that we'll all know how to pray for our pastors. We all agree that those in leadership are particularly vulnerable to the attack of the enemy, and so we ought to know how to pray. How do we pray for them? What is the prayer list? Well, you don't actually have to call me and ask me, what should I pray for? I can tell you what to pray for. Just read what Paul says a pastor ought to be, and you should pray that early and often and twice on Sundays. Third, so that we'll know how to hold pastors accountable so that we'll have the right standard to which we hold men accountable. There are those who are released from their service at churches for basically the same reasons that college football coaches are let go of their services because they didn't have produce enough results. Well, we want results, don't we? Don't you want to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ? Don't you want to see the church strengthened? Don't you want to see our witness shine brightly? Don't you want to see the Word go forward? Absolutely. But all of that is not what Paul talks about. What he talks about is who the pastor ought to be. And so this is where we begin with our thinking about accountability. The fourth thing is that leadership is a perennial issue. It, to say this in maybe a more stark way, because death is at the door, all right? Because no leader lasts forever. Because the church needs to be thinking in a perennial way about leadership. Because there will be a next generation. The men who are sitting around the table as elders now in I don't know, 20 years for some, 25 for others, maybe shorter for some, won't be there 
for one reason or another. And we always need to be thinking about this because God has ordained it for His church. So we need to be keeping this fresh in our minds. The fifth reason is that when we think carefully about the kinds of things that Paul describes here, what we find is that he's not just talking about the character of pastors, though he's talking about the character of pastors. When you read a place like 1 Peter 5, Peter says that pastors are to be examples for the flock. In other words, the kinds of things that you read a pastor ought to be is ultimately supposed to be trickled down into the congregation so that as we follow the example of our leaders, we actually all bear these marks, not just some of us. Certainly, it must be conspicuous in those who lead. It must be obvious in those who lead. But it's not only for those who lead. So as we think about this, there's a much bigger issue at stake than just leadership. It's about Christian character in general. Uh, in speaking about these qualifications, Don Carson writes, the most remarkable feature of the list is that it is unremarkable. It contains nothing about intelligence, thank goodness, decisiveness, drive, wealth, power. Almost everything on the list is elsewhere in the New Testament required of all believers. Christian leadership, therefore, demands a focus on the kinds of characteristics and virtues that ought to be present in Christians everywhere. Okay? So with that in mind, with, I hope, a conviction that we ought to know this because God has said it, because we'll know how to pray, we'll know how to hold pastors accountable, because we need to be thinking always about leadership and the next generation and these things, and because the character we see here is meant to be everyone's character and not just some people's character Let's look at this text. But the point that Paul is trying to make here is that rightly ordered churches require rightly ordered pastors. Rightly ordered churches require rightly ordered pastors. Okay? So first of all, let's think about rightly ordered churches. Now, we don't know when or how Titus is left in Crete by Paul. We just don't know. There's a couple of theories out there, but there's nothing conclusive. But what we do know is why Titus was left in Crete. And Paul says it right there in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Things are not in order, either because things have fallen apart or because the church is so young it hasn't been ordered properly to begin with. Now, this, this, this word to put into order, the root of it is orthos. Now, you may recognize that not because you are a Greek scholar, but because you've been to an orthopedic doctor or an orthodontist. The idea is that things need to be set straight. Okay? They need to be organized. They need to be arranged. God wants things in order because, friends... God is a God of order. I mean, think about God's order in creation. As you, as you read Genesis 1, what you find is God creating everything in order. He, we have day and night, light and dark, water and land, animals and plants, all in their rightful place. And then human beings created in God's image, created as male and female. That is God's order for humanity, that He creates men and women as men and women. And then He tells them to fill the earth and to have dominion over it. Why? So that things stay in order. But we don't just see God's order in creation, we see God's order in redemption. You see, not long after creation, uh, things fall apart, as it were. Sin disorders the relationship between God and man. Sin disorders the relationship between human beings and one another. Sin disorders creation itself. Those of you with uh, maybe a Catholic background would recognize that word disordered because it's a way that in the catechism sin is spoken of, that sin is disordered. It's going in the wrong direction. It's not right. 
You see, so the, so the rest of the story of the Bible from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22 is the story of God putting things back in order, ultimately through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who came into this disordered world in order to bring order to forgive our sins so that our relationship with God is back in order. And once your relationship with God is back in order, then your relationship with other human beings can be back in order. We can't just all hold hands and sing great songs and the world's going to be in unity apart from reconciliation with Jesus, with God through Jesus Christ. Because the basis for that unity will be wrong every time. It'll be short, it'll be temporal, it'll fade. But God has come and He has reordered things. And in the end, in the new heavens and new earth, do you know what will be there? Do you know what will happen? you know what will be the case between God and man, between human beings and one another? you know what will be the case in all of creation? It will be back to perfect order. Everything will be as it should be. God is a God of order, so it shouldn't surprise us that God wants order in the church for the sake of right doctrine and right worship so that He is understood rightly, so that He is exalted rightly, so His church will grow, so that the church's mission will be accomplished. Order is necessary for all of that. But even if you don't think about the whole Bible, if you only think about the letter to Titus, you'll find that in several places, Paul doesn't use that word ordered again, okay? But he's calling for order in a few things because the church is surrounded by disordered doctrine. Look at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. What is the problem? They're bringing disorder to God's church. Paul says in chapter 2 that we ought to be living orderly private lives. Look at chapter 2, verse 2 and beyond. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. He is calling young and old Christians alike to be ordered, and that older Christians are to help younger Christians know what it actually means to live that kind of life. And then in chapter 3, not only are we to be orderly in our private lives, we're to be orderly in our public lives. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Isn't that interesting? We're to have orderly lives in private and in public. And then finally, Paul, in closing, says you need to make sure that you deal properly with disorder. Look at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3. As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This whole business of putting things into order is not limited to this one phrase. This is, in many ways, the theme of the whole letter. Put things into order. Our lives as Christians need to be in order. The doctrine in the church needs to be in order. When things get disordered, we need to deal with it. Order, 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 all of it. God wants order in the court, except it's the church. God wants order in the church. God wants order in Gray Road Baptist Church. So how does that happen? 
Well, how do we do it? How, how will order be maintained over the long haul? What is God's design, God's method? Well, one key piece of it is the very next phrase in verse 5, which tells us that we need rightly ordered pastors. Rightly ordered pastors. Let me read verse 5 again. That is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Titus has been left there with an assignment that the apostolic authority of Paul says put things in order and appoint elders because in short form that will be the beginning of long-standing order in the church that rightly ordered pastors. He is to order pastors. So in verse 5 you'll notice it's elders. What's the word in verse 7? Say it out loud. I can't hear you. Overseers. See it just to see who has the King James. In the King James, it says bishops. All right? But these are all talking about the same thing. Pastors, elders, overseers. They, they refer to the same men, but with slightly different emphases. So elders speaks to their uh, seniority and authority within the church. Overseers speaks to the task of pastoral oversight within the church. Pastors takes the picture of shepherding and applies it to the work, that these men are to feed and to protect God's flock, both in public and in private. Now, that's important to remember. Because when I was coming up through seminary, we, there, was, there were a host of men first of all, who were very fascinated and, and, and just wanted to spend all of their time talking about the doctrines of grace. But if they weren't talking about God's absolute sovereignty and salvation, here's what they were talking about. I'm a preacher. That's what I do. I preach. People want counseling. I may meet with them once, and then I'm going to farm them out to somebody else. Now, the problem wasn't actually in those guys. The problem was that we, had been tra- that we were being trained to think that way. To think that the beginning and the ending of the shepherding task is right here. Now, this is part of the shepherding task. But when you watch Paul, you don't see a man who only finds a pulpit. He finds people in their homes. He said he preached in public and he went from house to house. It was public and it was private. It was in the big group and it was one-to-one. You see, a pastor who lives in the study and lives for the pulpit and who distances himself from people and their problems and their suffering and their sin is no true New Testament pastor. Layers and layers of hierarchy before you can get to a pastor in a congregation is more like corporate America than it is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he may be a great preacher. He may be a deep thinker. He may be a published author. He may be an influential leader. He may be a man of great organizational ideas, but he's not a New Testament pastor. These men are to be elders and overseers and pastors, all wrapped up in one. That's what God says we need. And notice, God says we need them. All right? I hate to bring up grammar on a Sunday morning because some of you are dreading your English class tomorrow, but elders, plural, in every town, singular. God intends that there be multiple men who lead His church. It's the same thing that Paul and Barnabas did when they went back through cities where Paul had preached. Acts 14.23 says that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, singular. Now, I want to be clear. Paul's goal isn't just to have a certain church government in place, right? As if having a particular organizational structure ensures that all is well. Right? You're talking to a new person at work, and they tell you where they go to church, and they tell you that the elders did this and the elders did that, and you say, oh, you've got elders. You must be a healthy church. Friends, there's no, that's, that's, a, that's a crazy thing to deduce just from knowing that some church has elders, plural. But we don't dismiss the fact 
that there are to be elders, plural, all right? But we don't just need pastors. We need rightly ordered pastors. That's why Paul gives this list of qualifications. Now, we could look in depth at each word. We're not going to. It's a worthwhile study. I commend it to you. If you want to, we actually, back when we did transition from, uh, uh, from our former polity, where basically I was the only elder, and there were deacons, and uh, like anything called an associate pastor just kind of hung out in no man's land. There was no place for them within that polity. They were just kind of there, all right? But, I mean, there's no biblical place for it. Uh, so when we transition to seek to function more biblically, uh, we several men from here, about a dozen of us, studied from beginning to end the Bible when it comes to leadership, and we produced a little booklet called uh, Leadership in God's Church. I just basically summarized our studies. If you think that would be helpful and you want to dive deeper with that, just let me know, and then I'll ask Debbie where it is, and then we'll get it to you, all right? Uh, so, because she knows where it is, I think, I hope. I'm saying it, so Debbie, you should know where it is. Um, but, but what I want to do today is actually group these qualifications into three groups, all right? The first, so that we can get our mind around this. First, pastors must have rightly ordered homes. Rightly ordered homes. Look at verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, I don't think that this requires that a man be married and have children in order to serve as a pastor. But I think, generally speaking, the men who serve in this capacity will be married and they will have children. And assuming that, they should have rightly ordered homes. He should be the husband of one wife. Okay, the husband of one wife. Now, in the context, uh, in, in that day and in Crete, Polygamy, the idea of having multiple wives, was quite common, as it is still in some places in the world. But what Paul says is that he must be a husband of one wife. Christ has one bride. So the pastor must be the husband of one wife, because marriage is to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. But it goes a little farther. He is to be the husband of one wife. He's not just to have a wife, you see. He's to be the husband of one wife. He's, he's to love sacrificially as husbands are to do. He is to lead her in godliness as husbands are meant to do. He is to protect and to serve her as husbands are meant to do. He is to do what is best for her as husbands are meant to do. Not only is he to be the husband of one wife, he's to be the husband of one wife. In other words, he should be a one-woman man. It's deeper than monogamy. It's not just about what is your marital status. There's more to it. His thoughts and affections must belong to his wife alone. His eyes don't wander. His heart doesn't wander. He doesn't click on other women that he thinks might be more fulfilling than his wife. He doesn't seek out other women for deep and meaningful friendships that are meant to take the place of what his wife is meant to be. He is not to be a flirt in the workplace, and he is certainly not meant to be a flirt in the church. He is to be a one-woman man. Now, men, that is all of you. That is all of you. This is not just about pastors or those who will be pastors at some point. This is a basic understanding of marriage and what it means to be a husband. It's basic. This is not next level this is foundational. But even beyond that, those of you who are young boys, young boys, 
Whatever you're doing, look at me. Young boys, whatever you may be coloring right now, look at me. The fact that God wants you to be the husband of one wife one day means that you need to think about how you treat the girls and women who are around you now. Young men, if you are who are who are the young women who are your friends? If you date, who is it that you date? If you think that you will be one man dating and single and a completely different man married, that is not how change works. And so, young men, boys, single men, you need to treat and speak to the girls and women in your life with honor and sacrificially serve them and show Christ-like love to them. Be a godly man toward all women. And then Paul says his children are to be believers. Did that kind of make your eyebrows go up when you heard that? When you read it? Look at this. Verse 6. The husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now this has confused some because they draw the conclusion that every child of a pastor must therefore be a Christian. Now this draws up some difficult conversations, doesn't it? Not just difficult because not all children are believers. I just mean, how do you apply it? At what age must a child be a Christian before this qualifies? You're going to manufacture an artificial age there? What about the children of pastors who are adults and who've moved out, but they're still his children? What are you supposed to do about them? Well, the good news is we don't actually have to answer those questions because I don't think that's what Paul is after. The word for believers here is a word that is usually translated in the New Testament as faithful, meaning that they are obedient, meaning that they are submissive, not that they have come to faith in Jesus Christ necessarily. In fact, if you just read the text, let me, let me just tell you, if you have an ESV Bible, if you have an English Standard Version of the Bible, what you'll see is, is it says, His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, as if this is the kind of believer they ought to be. Well, the word and is not in the original manuscript there. So what we have is they ought to be believers, and then we have a phrase that tells us what he means by that. What does he mean by this word that means faithful? He means that the children of these men are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. They've not gone off the rails to use. They're not uncorrectable by dad. It's not that they need correction. It's if he doesn't actually do what is necessary to correct and to bring them back into order. Jim Elif puts it this way, they are not wasted, aimless, God-mocking individuals. You see, the home is the proving ground for leadership in the church. It's where a man must first teach and first lead, and first encourage, and first discipline, and first apply the gospel, and first pray for those who are under his care before he ever takes leadership in the church. That's what Paul tells Timothy. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Rightly ordered homes. Secondly, rightly ordered character and conduct. Now, this is where most of the qualifications actually are, both here and in uh, 1 Timothy 3, because the character of a man who leads is paramount. When we discuss today these matters of character and competency when it comes to pastoral leadership, the weight of the emphasis in our day is on competency. Is he strategic? Is a man creative? Is he well or, a well-organized man? Is he a visionary? Is he a good manager of people? 
Well, none of these things are bad, and, and, and they can be quite helpful. But the question that Paul asks, and the question that the New Testament asks, and the question that God is asking is, is he a godly man? Not is he a gifted man first, but is he a godly man? Because if you're godly and your gifts need to be developed, that's one thing. But if you're gifted and you're not godly, it just doesn't matter. Paul says he must be above reproach. Not meaning perfect or else we'd have no pastors. He must be unimpeachable. His integrity must be unquestionable. Oh yes, accusations may be hurled at him, but nothing sticks. Now it's important for me to say that, and I'm just going to take a brief side note to say that the presence of an accusation does not disqualify one immediately. Paul tells Timothy that in 1 Timothy 5. There must be corroboration. This must not just be one person with a vendetta against that elder to say, oh yeah, that guy, well that guy I saw with lady so-and-so and they were around the corner. We must be people who take these things seriously but take them carefully and cautiously and think and investigate and corroborate and all of those things. Because above reproach doesn't mean nobody will ever think, oh, I'm going to get that Toby. I'm going to send an email. Trust me, I know friends. I have friends in this city where people in their church did those exact things to them. Send an email to the whole email list at church accusing them of sinful behavior. If that's just taken at face value and assumed to be the case, we're not doing things rightly. We take them seriously, but we don't just take them and run with them. Because a man has to be above reproach, all right? So that's the point. Nothing's going to stick. It's not going to stick. It may be said, but it won't stick. And what the rest of these say, basically, is that he'll do some things and not do the others. For example, I mean, just to summarize what Paul says here, uh, the pastor's not going to exalt himself. He's not going to explode in conflict. He's not going to trample over those that he should be serving. He's not going to indulge his flesh. He's not going to live for money, whether he's paid by the church or not. He'll love what's good. He'll live a life of purity and biblical morality. He, he welcomes people into his home, whether it's for a meal or for a season or maybe even for a lifetime. You see, the summary statement is he is self-controlled and he is disciplined. He's disciplined for the sake of godliness. It's a godly man we're talking about. Now, I'm going to read verses 7 and 8 again, but this time I don't want you to think about pastors. I want you to think about you. Think about your character. Because you must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. You must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. You must be above reproach. Imagine a congregation full of these people. Imagine a congregation full of men and women who are above reproach, who are all of these things. Wouldn't you want to be part of a congregation like that? That's not a rhetorical question. This means yes, this means no. Wouldn't you want to be part of a congregation like that? Well, then do you know what you must do? You must, by God's grace, be that person. And that's what grace does according to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Grace, verse 12, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Sounds a whole lot like the character of an elder, doesn't it? Renouncing ungodliness, renouncing worldly passions, living self-controlled, upright, and holy lives. But that's not for pastors, that's for all of us. 
Rightly ordered home, rightly ordered character and conduct, and rightly ordered doctrine. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Okay? The word hold firm here speaks of devotion, a devotion to the Word of God that is public and private. He must not simply hold to the Word when he's behind the pulpit. He must hold to the Word in private, and he must hold to the trustworthy Word as taught. Now, that may seem quite obvious, isn't it? It should seem obvious a pastor should be committed to sound doctrine, should be committed to the trustworthy Word. But do you know that seeking to please people and draw crowds and be accepted and get applause, that causes many to lose their grip? So that what they'll do often is they'll focus on the things that they find most pleasant that are taught in the Word, and they will eliminate or minimize things that seem less pleasant in the Word. Oh, yes, yes, yes. We will tell you today about the Jesus who is gentle and lowly and comes and scoops you up and holds you in His arms. But never will we tell you about the Jesus who will spit you out of his mouth if you are lukewarm. Who threatens to wage war on churches that tolerate false doctrine and immorality. You see, Jesus is both. He's not just one or the other. He's not just overturning tables. And he's not just bending down to scoop up the hurting. He does both. And he does both based on the condition of the heart, which he is addressing. Which Jesus will it be today? Well, it's not based on his mood or something silly like that. It's based on the condition of our hearts and what we need at that moment. And so the, the elder is to believe all of it, to teach all of it. He's to be devoted to it in public and in private, just like devotion to your wife isn't measured simply by how people think you're devoted to your wife in public. It's actually measured by what you do in private, same thing. And this kind of devotion informs and shapes his ministries. To do two things here, this summarizes what it means to be able to teach, if you're familiar with the list in 1 Timothy 3, that he gives instruction in sound doctrine. He not only clearly knows God's Word, he clearly speaks God's Word so that it's understood. But he's not just able to teach. He's not just able to captivate your attention, to hold your attention or something like that. Calvin commented, he should not try to show off and discuss frivolous curiosities, but rather seek only to benefit the church. That's why he must teach sound doctrine. But it's not just a lecture here. This is not teaching like classroom teaching. This is teaching that calls us to do something about it. This is teaching that exhorts us and that tells us we need to change. We need to conform our lives to Scripture. And then we're, uh, the, the, these pastors are to rebuke those who contradict it. When people object to the truth, when they oppose the truth, when they become argumentative with the truth, Pastors must lead the way in correction. Yes, as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, must correct uh, with gentleness. But must correct. When pastors cease to do their God-given duty to correct doctrine that is false, do you know what happens to the church? It becomes disordered. It becomes basically a religious discussion society where everybody's opinion about God and the Bible and about Jesus and about sin and about homosexuality and about gender and about what's right and what's wrong and about lying and about theft and about work and about money, it all just becomes up to you. It basically takes the authority out of the hands of Jesus Christ in His Word and hands it to each of us so that, so that we can decide. It is painful to correct things that are particularly wrong and go to the heart of the gospel, but it is absolutely necessary. I've sat across from several folks that I've just looked at them and listened and I've said, 
You can't believe that. You can't think that way. If I don't, if these men don't, we condemn people to live sinfully, to think sinfully. And we can't do that. Calvin says a pastor needs two voices. One for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. Well, these are the kinds of men that God calls. These are rightly ordered pastors. They're rightly ordered in their home. They're rightly ordered in character and conduct. They're rightly ordered in doctrine. And we need them. Because rightly ordered churches require rightly ordered pastors. I'm just going to take my last few minutes and address you men. 1 Timothy 3 says that if a man desires this office, this role, he desires a good thing. I wonder, I wonder if you desire it. I'm not asking, do you desire to preach? I'm not asking if you desire a spotlight or influence. If you just want a platform, go find it somewhere else. The question is, do you want to serve? Do you want to be part of being used by God to lead God's people by God's Word for God's glory? Because if you do, it's a good thing. Oh, you may continue on your work as an engineer or a teacher or a retail manager or a doctor or a nurse or a chef or an accountant or a lawyer or a skilled, tra- a skilled tradesman. You, you may be retired, but you also may think in your heart, I feel compelled to serve that way. I want to serve that way. Well, that's a good thing. You may have a desire and hear these qualifications and draw the conclusion, who is sufficient for these things? You may be overwhelmed by the idea of your Christian life being an example to others. Ha! Join the club. If you read these qualifications and you don't tremble at them, you're not reading them right. But still the desire is good. If you have this desire even if it's not time right now for you to pursue it, I wonder if you might take a moment to express it to one of our elders so that we can pray about it, so that we can think about it with you. I mean, right now I have two lists in my mind from our membership role. One of men I think might move toward eldership in the next five years or so, And one of men who might move toward eldership in the next 10 years or so. I mean, it's speculative, but I'm thinking about these things because we have to be thinking about it. We need to be thinking about it. If we're, by the way, if we're going to plant a church somewhere, we need to be thinking about issues of leadership. Not just wouldn't it be nice if we could plant a church. We want to send these kinds of men who've been tested and have experience to go out and do that. So ladies, maybe it's the case that your husband is one of those men. Maybe it's the case that your son will be. Maybe it's the case that your brother will be. Maybe it's the case that you're single and your future husband will be. I wonder, I wonder if you would pray that he would be a rightly ordered man, even if he never becomes a pastor. And men, are you rightly ordering your life? Could God be calling you to serve him? as a pastor. If so, don't ignore it. 
Every one of the guys around the table that are serving us as elders right now did not just poof, appear out of nowhere. At some point, God put a desire in us to begin moving that way. At some point, we were some 10-year-old boy, some 12-year-old boy, some 17-year-old boy who was just trying to make it through another day at church, just trying to get to lunch, just checking off the bullets and all of those things. We were those kids, and God moved and worked in ways that are amazing and gracious, and none of us would say we deserve to be in the role that we're in, but we also wouldn't trade it. We, would, we don't want to do something else. This is what God has given us a desire to do. And so as God allows, we do it. And the fact is, you may not be able to see yourself there. I couldn't see myself there. But God in His grace sees what we can't see. My prayer is that God will make us a church full of these kinds of Christians and that God will raise up men to be these kinds of pastors. Because rightly ordered churches require rightly ordered pastors. Let's pray. Father, we come before you Thankful for your word, for all that it teaches us, asking you to make us into these kinds of people. We pray that you would keep us from arrogance and violence and greed. We pray that you would make us hospitable and lovers of good and holy and upright, self-controlled, disciplined. And we pray, God, that even as you would make us all those kinds of people by your grace, we pray that you would raise up men in this congregation to lead your people in the future. We pray that you will give them desires to serve you in this way. We pray that you would do that for your glory and for the stability of your church over the long haul. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.